You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text as this is a recording and lines are now closed. A'udhu billahi minash shaitanir rajeem. Bismillahir rahmanir rahim. In the name of Allah the most gracious ever merciful dear listeners. Welcome to Breakfast Show on Voice of Islam Radio broadcasting from the biggest mosque of UK, the Battle of Two Mosque. Dear listeners, my name is Shah Munir Ahmed and I'm going to be your host for the next 2 hours. Dear listeners, Breakfast Show is a show where we normally explore, we discuss, we talk, we explain uh, certain uh, issues or uh, topics with the islamic perspective as well and today we will do the same today dear listeners we have prepared normally we have prepared two topics but today we will have two segments which we will discuss about so dear listeners i hope you are enjoying your breakfast or maybe you have already enjoyed your breakfast i'm going to make sure that you also enjoy uh, today's shows as i said we have three segments which we have prepared the first segment um will be about modesty so we will talk about modesty f- and we will talk about also from the islamic perspective about the veil what islam says and we will also discuss why veil is important not only for women but especially for men then dear listeners we will talk about pretty privilege uh, which is very close to the first segment it's basically we will discuss how people who basically look better or beautiful how they are um how they take advantage of certain things or how they are treated than other people who are not looking in the same way then uh dear listeners the last topic will be national matchmaker you might have heard about this uh it is very current uh, on netflix as well we have different uh, shows about that we have the indian matchmaker we have the jewish matchmaker as well so we will talk about this phenomenon as well today we will talk what to meaning it it is about and um we will also discuss it from the islamic angle dear listeners therefore we have even uh, we have prepared a few pre recordings we will also have uh, some live interviews today as well so as i said dear listeners my duty today is to make sure that you enjoy today's show um but we, before we go to our first segment um let's have a look on today's newspapers So the listeners if you just open the newspaper or if you just look at the front pages the word which you will find many times is chaos basically describing the flight delays and cancellations caused by the air traffic control on Monday now the i says some airlines have been accused of abandoning stranded passengers and according to the sun about 200,000 people have been told their first available flight back to britain might be at the end of next week now they listen what i like because i live very close to the heathrow airport and my son is always excited to see the airplanes he will go stay in the window and he will spot every single airplane and he will tell me look there there's the airplane and i have to go there stand next to him and have to see how the airplane just fly over our house etc so on that day we were both me and my son we were surprised because we haven't seen any planes and it was very strange because normally um you would be prepared to hear uh, you would be prepared to hear the noises exact about in that in that day you basically enjoyed uh, the day because you you were just enjoying how calm everything was so of course um 
it was very stressful for the passengers. So I hope this uh, won't happen again because my son was very distressed as well because he's a big fan of planes. Carry on, the Daily Mirror, dear uh, listeners, report that many people stuck overseas are paying for hotels and new flights themselves, leaving them heavily out of pocket. Now, the Daily Mail says also, those affected will not be entitled to compensation because the disruption has been caused by extraordinary circumstances. Now, Daily Express is on one of the several papers to suggest a French airline was to blame for filling the flight plan which forced the system offline. Now, in an interview with the Financial Times, Foreign Secretary James Cleverly defends his decision to visit Beijing. He says not to engage with China would be a sign of weakness, not strength, adding that he would not be able to raise concern about human rights violations Hong Kong or Beijing's sanctions against some British MPs unless he spoke to the Chinese government. The Daily Telegraph says some members of the cabinet are against the visit and a senior Whitehall figure has accused Mr. Cleverly of sucking up to the Chinese. One of the MPs sanctioned by China, Sir Duncan Smith, tells the paper the current British position on China is we want more business, therefore we don't want to upset the Chinese too much. Coming to the Times, the Times says its survey of 1,207 priests has found that 75% of them believe Britain can no longer be described as a Christian country. Now, some 53% said they wanted the church to start marrying gay couples, with 37% opposing it, and 63% want the church to drop its opposition to pre-martial sex. In an editorial, the paper says that if it wants to avoid irrelevance, the church would be wise to embrace the liberal instincts of its clergy of the country. Now, a report of the Mirror says, The king has overruled the price of Wales and ordered senior royals to welcome the disgraced Duke of York back into the family fold. The paper says it has been told that the king feels he has a lot in his tray and that he wants to draw a line under this issue. In a tutorial, the paper warns the king that he will undermine both himself and the monarchy if he rehabilitates his brother. And finally, a number of the papers feature pictures of the England football captain Harry Kane and traditional Bavarian Lederhosen after his move to Bayern Munich. Harry is the chosen one, says the son. Look, everyone who know who's watching football uh, and knows how good Harry Kane basically is, and he is now reaching the age of 30, or he already has reached the age of 30, he's someone who should, or sh- yeah, should have won many, many titles because the way he plays, uh, his skills, etc., it is very sad that to know that someone like him hasn't won any title yet and I hope, I wish for him all the best. Even though I'm not a Bayern Munich fan, I'm supporting Eintracht Frankfurt, it's also playing in the Bundesliga. But in the Champions League, I wish him all, all the best. Um, because, as I said, someone like him sh- should have been able to win at least one or two trophies. Uh, now, um, coming to Poya um the listeners, I mean, like, I'm a huge uh, coffee fan. Um, I like uh, Costa. I'm a, I'm like someone who would li- rather go to Costa. I've tried different um, coffee shops like um, Starbucks as well, and also the Pre Um Now 
BBC says that Priya Mujhe has been fined £800,000 after a worker was stuck in a walk-in freezer for two and a half hours. The employee, wearing only jeans and a T-shirt, tried to keep warm by moving around but feared for her life and was treated for suspected hypothermia. After the incident in London in 2021, it was found that there had been no suitable risk assessment. The chain pleaded guilty to her to a health and safety offence at Westminster Magistrate Court on Tuesday. Westminster City Council, which investigated the incident, said the worker became trapped in the freezer, which typically had a temperature set at minus 80 degrees at the chain's Victoria Coast station shop on 29th July that year. Now, she was eventually found in a state of distress by a colleague, while in the freezer, she found her breathing was becoming restricted and she began to lose sensation at her thigh and feet. At one point, she tried to tear up a cardboard box to use as cover from the ventilator blowing out cold air, but her hands were too cold to break it. Now, this is a significant find that an investigation found that there was no suitable risk assessment for employees working in temperature-controlled environments. Now, Priya Moje's reporting system revealed that there had been there had been several callouts relating or, or to to defective or frozen push buttons in the previous ninety months. On one occasion, at the same remote kitchen, a worker became stuck in the walk-in freezer after being unable to open the door from the inside. In, the, in that incident in January twenty twenty, now the internal door release mechanism was not working. Westminster Settle Council. Deputy Leader and Cabinet Member for Communities, Public Protection and Licensing, licensing Aisha Less said, Overlooking basic safety measures can have the most serious consequences, and we hope the significant fine awarded in court acts to all business as a warning. A prayer manager, spokesman, sorry, said we have carried out a full review and have worked with the manufacturer to develop a solution to stop this from happening again. Following the incident, we have uh, revisited all our exis uh, existing systems and where appropriate enhanced this process and have cooperated fully with Westminster City Council's investigation. <coughs> So I don't know how many fans, uh, how many uh, uh, fans we have, or basically how many of them are going to pay homage. Uh, as I said, I'm much more like going to Costa sector. They have like very tasty coffees and uh, drinks. Uh, I'm, I'm a big, 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 becoming a big fan of it. Uh, I don't remember like just a few years ago, maybe like a year before. Uh, I wouldn't go there. So my wife, she made me like going there and it's becoming like a habit. So whenever I see like these shops, especially Costa, it is like I have to go there and have to buy a drink. Um, dear listeners, um, coming to sports, you might have heard it, um, about uh, Rangers who have lost um, their qualification play of game for the Champions League against PZ Eindhoven. They were crushed in aggregate for 7-3. Uh, um, so like Rangers' dreams of an immediate return to the Champions League group stage were crushed by ruthless PSV in Eindhoven. Now, uh, I don't know how many of you are watching football. Uh, Champions League is one of the most excited tournaments I have always watched. 
And um, I think like for everyone, for everyone who wants to become a professional football player, he's dreaming of playing in the uh, Champions League. So I can understand uh, the players of Rangers. I also can understand the fans of Rangers because it's actually a very talented team. I remember a few years ago, they played in the European League final where they lost against Eintracht Frankfurt, which again was a good day for me because I'm a supporter of Eintracht Frankfurt. But they have good players. I remember the captain James Tavernier. Uh, he's a very talented, skillful player. So, <clears throat> uh, but if you look at the game yesterday, I think um, uh, I will agree with the Rangers manager Michael Beal when he said. It is fair that PSV go through. He said, I thought the story of the two legs was we, uh, we couldn't handle Sabiri and Luke de Jong. I think we played against an excellent team over two legs. For this team coming together after a lot of change, this game came far too soon. That's what's clear. Now, despite an admirable opening quarter, this outcome always seemed the most likely once PSV retouched up their play to a level Rangers struggled to handle. So this is um uh I don't know how many again I don't know how many of you are following football but I'm a huge fan of football and as I said like Premier uh, Champions League was one of the first tournament I've started while I started watching football freak uh, um and um yeah I can feel the pain um, also, who have qualified for the next stop for the Champions League question is Royal Antwerp, who beat uh, Athen uh, 3-1 on aggregate. Also, uh, who has been qualified for the next stage of the Champions League is Copenhagen, who won 2-1 on aggregate against Rakov Teskova. And uh, also, uh, we had uh, the F EFL Cup uh, round second, and Chelsea beat Wimbledon 2-1. Blackburn Rovers beat Harrogate 8-1. Nottingham Forest lost to Burnley 1-0, so this is one Premier League team who has been kicked out. Sheffield United has also lost to Lincoln City on penalties. Everton won against Doncaster Rovers. I think this must be a huge relief for every Everton supporter because Everton is not doing well in the Premier League. Has lost all of his matches till yet. And uh, struggling to find his uh, form. Um, the way Everton is playing in the Premier League, um, I'm always surprised that they're still in the Premier League because they always struggled. And um, for me, it was like they're going to be relegated. But they have somehow remained in the Champions League yet. Uh, sorry, in the Premier League. Let's see what uh, the future will be hold for them. For them. Um, Lucy Letby, uh, coming to her, uh, which is, again, it's a very sad story, for especially for those who have young children or babies or who are getting babies this year. Inquiry uh, given power to compel witness to give evidence. This is what the BBC is saying. The inquiry into how nurse Lucy Letby was able to murder seven babies will now have greater powers to compel witnesses to give evidence. In a significant move, ministers upgraded the independent inquiry after criticism from families of the victims that it did not go far enough. The inquiry, ordered after Letby was found guilty this month, was not initially given full statutory powers. Health Secretary Steve Barclay said he had listened to the families. 
He said he had decided inquiry led by his judge was the best way forward and respects the wishes of the families. Now, Mr. Barclay said the key advantage was the power of compulsion. He says, my priority is to ensure the families get an answer they deserve and people are held to account where they need to be, he added. Now, he said an announcement about who would chair the inquiry would be made in the coming days. Ministers have already said it will be a judge. Richard Scora, a lawyer who is representing two of the families, welcomed the government's announcement. He said, It is essential that the chair has the power to compel witnesses to give evidence under oath and to force disclosure of documents. Without these powers, the inquiry would have been ineffectual and our clients would have been deprived of the answers they need and deserve. Now, Shadow Health Secretary was treating said it was right the family's wishes. It was right the family's wishes have known be taken into account adding that no stone can be left unturned in getting to the truth. Matthew Taylor, chief executive of the NHS Confederation, said, It was vital that lessons are learned by the NSH, its regulators, clinicians and leaders. Now, there are, of course, a series of, of questions, he said, that are being raised by the events in Chester and the inquiry will be best place to establish the facts of these events and to draw conclusion and recommendations for the trust of the wider NSH. Ladby, who was 33, was given a whole life sentence for murdering seven babies and attempting to kill six more while working in the continents of Chester Hospital, a neonatal, neonatal unit between 2015 and 2016, meaning she will spend the rest of her life in prison. And she was found not guilty on two attempted murders, and the jury could not reach verdicts on six other during the 10-month trial. Now, the conviction made had the most prolific child serial killer in modern British history. The BBC has since been told hospital bosses failed to investigate allegations against that pit and tried to silence doctors. The hospital also delayed calling the police despite months of warning that the nurse may have been killing babies, according to doctors who work at the hospital. The unit's lead consultant, Dr. Stephen Brady, first raised concern, uh, concern about Ledby in October 2015, but no action was taken and she went on to attack five more babies, killing two. Now, hospital management has demanded doctors write an apology to Ledby and to told them to stop making allegations against her. Wow. Now, that's like a huge disappointment. I mean, if they have would added, uh, acted earlier, those people would be saved. Uh, like Unlike doctors and nurses, there's no national obligation of managers. Now, the senior manager involved went on to work in other high-profile roles in the NSH, prompting calls for tighter regulation on NSH managers. The move to make the inquiry is being seen as crucial to finding out exactly what happened and what lessons should be learned. Although some have pointed out Inquiries can take longer to hold, something Minister had already said was the justification for making the inquiry not statutory. Meanwhile, the Minister of Justice has proposed new laws to try to force criminals to attend sentencing hearings. Let be is one of a number of high-profile offenders who have refused to appear. Powers already exist to compel people to attend, but Ministry of Justice sources Sources say they are not often used. A Minister of Justice 
source said, clearly legislation to allow judges to increase sentence by two years was likely to encourage them to do so. Well, that in the beginning uh, for those young parents or who those who are bec- uh, becoming parents in, in the future timings or in a few months, um, it is kind of a relief that someone like this is behind bars and will stay there for whole, whole life. But it's still a bit frightening as well. And uh, of course, babies are those vulnerable creatures, like innocent creatures, which you would not never harm, not even in your dream. And it is strange how someone could be able to do so. So it is very sad for and uh, condolence to the families, to the victims, the families. As I said, it's a huge loss. Um, you're preparing your whole life. You, you're preparing the nine months for that moment, and suddenly someone comes and takes that, uh, that precious thing from you away. Uh, it is very devastating. And but the Holy Prophet Muhammad peace be upon him at that, who's losing three children or three babies, or um, he will go straight to paradise. And then there was a lady. She said, "I have lost two children, two babies." Um, what about me? And the Prophet said, you will also go to paradise. And then uh, there was one lady, she said, I have only lost one baby, one child, one in a young age. And the Prophet said, you will also go to paradise. The reason he has explained that or he said that is because the pain someone feels, Allah knows the pain, God knows the pain as well. And for that pain, he will, he will remove all the sins and will make the door open for them to go to paradise. And um, it is also a glad, um, it's a, uh, yeah, it's basically good news to know that these babies or these innocent child who have died in a young age will also go straight to heaven. Again, they listen, I know it's a very big pain and uh, um, I, to be honest, I don't want anyone to imagine that pain. Um, the listeners, uh, as I said, we have prepared three very interesting topics. Uh, before we go to the topics, uh, we will go for a short break. Just do me a favor, stay tuned with the voice of some radio, um, and I will be back after that short break. Allah-u Akbar, Allah. أشهد أن لا إله إلا الله أشهد أن محمدا Listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. In the name of Allah, the most gracious, ever merciful, dear listeners, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Welcome back. You're listening to Breakfast Show on Voice of Islam Radio, broadcasting from the biggest mosque of UK, the Battle of Two Mosques. Dear listeners, we will talk about modesty. 
I want to know you, about you, what you think about modesty. What comes? What is the first thing which comes into your mind when you heard the word modesty? You can call in anytime. The number is 0208-687-787 or you can go on our socials at Voice of Islam UK. Now we come to our first segment. And the gist of the story, dear listeners, is that the observance of modesty in many cultures is there to empower women. Now, its principal objective is to ensure that women are respected and treated with dignity. In a number of countries, the observance of modesty is encouraged and thought at school, where girls and boys are thought that respecting the bodies is a fundamental part of human behavior. Now, however, however some argue that this disempowers women. But many women contract this by stating they feel more respected when they are fully covered. Moreover, they state that the observance of modesty is an important aspect to them to their identity and it has no hindered them in assessing opportunities and integrating into society. Right in the beginning, I just want to make one thing. For me, a, a woman uh, who's wearing, like, for example, the hijab or or wearing the, the Islamic uh, way of clothing, is wearing the Islamic clothing in the Islamic way. I think for me that woman is the most bravest person in the earth when she's living in this society where mostly uh, modesty or um, the Islamic way of clothing is not um, accepted. But she still tries to go out, goes to school, try to get education and then tries to get a job as well with the way, with the Islamic law of wearing. So I think that is the most brave thing you can do because it is very difficult. People will look at you, people will laugh at you, people will, I don't know, maybe do some very stupid thing, but still she gets up every day uh, and that is, this is an encouragement for everyone as well because, you know, we see that there should be women rights, women should Get, come and should speak about their rights and this is I think the best way to speak about it to go out every day to show them that I'm not afraid of the society and that I want to show them my faith as well I want to show them that I can integrate with my faith I can integrate with the way of clothing so I think this is this is the best thing we can do and that's, that, that's why I said in the beginning I, I want to make the statement right in the beginning of the segment I believe this is these women, the Islamic women wearing uh, the hijab or the abayak sector are the most bravest people we can see in this society. So, but coming now back to um, the first discussion point, like because uh, you have already heard that in few countries, um, boys and girls, um, they are taught about uh, the importance of uh, modesty. And uh, now, Everyone, maybe someone will be asking why is this so important you know, because as boys girls and boys grew up they will become a part and play in a role a role in the society now, therefore it is important to teach both what role modesty has in one's life and how it, it is practiced because both girls and boys can have questions about it and how they view it so in a topic um, you know uh, this topic should be addressed but with respect and with patience as well. Now, because, you know, modesty is also important to teach children to respect boundaries for themselves and for other people. 
Now, it does symbolize reinforcing respecting each other, including an aspect and how people are and are not allowed to look at each other and the limits of touching someone. Now, remember that before touching, we ask someone for the permission. Uh, it is the same like if you go to someone's house, you won't touch uh, a certain thing. You won't touch, um, I mean, you won't touch someone's wallet or someone's car key because these are very precious to someone. So, And that person will also try to save them. This is the way we... We try to explain the certain thing. Um, now, the other thing is uh, um, people I've, I've always seen or people always ask me is um, that uh, why that women who dress modestly are generally seen as being repressed. Now, what does it say about social attitudes and response to this? This is what I'm. Uh, so many I've been asked too many times. Um, you, you listen, you know, one of the biggest misconceptions is that women are forced to cover themselves, and uh, uh, they are not doing it for free will. But however, how many times have we asked women, basically? How many times have we asked a Muslim woman or lady uh, about the way she is wearing it? Is she forced to do so, or is it her own will? Um. This is something you know. Um, we need to understand as well. This is because of coming to a conclusion. We need to we need to know um, what the other party is basically thinking of that. Is 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 a woman basically forced to do so or not? So um, this is like you know um, uh, one of the biggest misconceptions we have in Islam that basically. Um, women are basically uh, forced to do certain things. Now, um, you should remember that at times people think women are uh, who are wailing are not allowed to express themselves, or they're also saying that people fear that they don't understand and things might seem weird to them. Remember that this woman has also been integrated in the Western society. You will go out now in different workplaces. You will see a woman in a job who will be, might be a lawyer, maybe a doctor, uh, maybe working as a teacher as well, or many other uh, workplaces. We have even police officers who are wearing the hijab. So uh, this is uh, something you you know people just don't understand. Islam is not telling them not to do anything. It's not, it's not telling them to stay in the houses. Islam is telling them, come on, go out and tell them what you faith with. You know, Islam has always, always said that... Um, it is important that you are recognized not by the name, but by your practice. So as a Muslim, and remember, and this is very interesting, dear we will come to that later as well, and you will be surprised that wearing uh, or showing modesty, etc., is not only for the woman, but it is first in Islam, it is firstly for man. It is a, uh, it is basically told to men that they should do, or sh they should uh, lo lower their gaze so you will we will come to that later on as well. So um, because already uh, the listeners, I'm talking about um, modesty, um, but people think modesty is often seen through wailing, right? But um, let's see what modesty means on on a wider scale. So you know it holds importance of, for various reasons across cultures and belief systems. Now in many contexts, including religious, cultural, or pers personal, modesty is valued for its role in promoting respect, self-worth, and s s social harmony. Now, Genesis, 
From a religious standpoint, uh, modesty often goes in the line with teachings that emphasize humility and the preservation of one's dignity. For example, in Islam, modesty in dress and behavior is seen as a way to fulfill religious obligations and demonstrate devotion to God. Similar in Christianity, in other, on other faiths, modesty is linked to principle of humility and not seeing attention or vanity. The listeners, as I said before, we have a guest who wants to contribute to the show. His name is Salim Rahim. Um, Salim Rahim, uh, good morning. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh and welcome to the breakfast show. Wa alaikum assalam warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Yes. Your uh, topic, the modesty through behavior, I was quite keen on that. And I was listening a little bit, you was mentioning about hijab and uh, this. I just wanted to mention briefly on that one that I used to be very shy. And I recall there's a picture of me when I was young, maybe mm-hmm. about eight or even younger than eight, wearing shalwar kameez, which is like a long... Uh, uh, baggy trousers and a baggy shirt and a cap, and I and and I remember my mom, my mother still tells me that I used to be embarrassed and say if I go out, boys will laugh at me. Now I come to a stage now beyond fifty, and at this late stage, I suddenly become confident with my own identity. My identity is wearing these clothes, and why should my behaviour change? You know, I should be modest, I should be honest, mm. I should not shy away from my fundamental mm. principle background. Mm. So what I'm trying to say is that when I go out, and I'm trying, I'm still, you know, shy and fearful. I wear a cap, I wear my shalwar, uh, my kameez, my, I don't wear my shalwar at the moment. When I go to the office, I work in central government, right in parliament. I go wearing a head turban sometimes. I go inside, I'm wearing my... Uh, Kameez. And you know what? When I had my meeting yesterday with my manager who said to me uh, with another colleague that Salim, you know what? That's good you keep your identity because by mm. wearing your clothes, it shows your uniqueness and your humbleness. And that's the thing is that what I'm trying to say is that modesty through behavior, even when we wear our own clothes, our own fundamental principles, we keep them with us. That is actually a genuine good thing. We shouldn't shy away from it, actually, to be honest with you. This is all I really wanted to sort of, you know, put put out there. No, thank you for the Jazakal. No, you, you made a very good point as well that this is, you know, sometimes someone is unique, as you both have said, this is very unique what you do. And I really appreciate that, that you shouldn't shy away from that. You should be proud of what you are and where you come from. And uh, you should be brave enough as well to express you express you like that as well. Um, Salim, uh, thank you for y- your expression, for your time as well. I really appreciate that. And uh, I think the listeners have listeners as, as well. Uh, it's very good to hear from someone who's going to uh, sh- uh, showing modesty in his way as well and uh, very helpful as well thank you Salim for joining us well. I wish you all the thank best you. thank you thank you yeah. now. so dear listeners you just listened to Salim Rahim and he, he, he is someone as he said he's wearing the, uh, um, uh, the way of clothing is according to the Pakistani or Indian tradition but he's not shying away he's showing from, from where he is and again you, you have heard he's working and he, from government level but he, this had never stopped him 
uh, this way uh, has never stopped him uh, working as well. Instead, it helped him even more. And I believe those people who see him working in that place, wearing a tumor as well in his workplace, they realize that, listen, if he can do so, everyone can do so. So basically, clothing or the way of clothing is not stopping you, f- uh, it's not stopping you basically. You, you, someone can be so productive. Someone can be so helpful. So why looking on the way of clothing? You should look on his skills. And I think Salim, I believe Salim is a productive and very skillful personality. That's why he's working in, in this place as well. And wearing the tube and, and showing people how he is. This is very um, beautiful. I really enjoyed listening to him. Um, the listeners, we've come to our next guest, who is Antia Balham who's a writer and practicing interfaith minister, and she has a number of speculation, the interfaith movement, the use of meditation for the treatment of serious illness, the environment, prayer and the creation of prayer, and the study of spirit and death. The listener, she serves on the committee of the interfaith contact group of Brighton and Hove. Um, Anthea Balham, uh, good morning. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh, and welcome to The Breakfast Show. Good morning to you, and thank you so much for having me on the program. Um, I'm actually very delighted to have you right with me. Um, I just want to know, like, from your expertise, how do you define modesty? I really think that modesty is about behaving in a way that just doesn't offend other people. Uh, we have to remember that it's a word, but to me, mm-hmm. it's what people, many people call reading the room. It's It's a kind of sensitivity. It's accepting what is acceptable for other people and to think about it. For example, I think it's really necessary to, you know, in the company that you're with, to honor that company and its way of being and its morals and its standards. And I think that modesty is simply about being sensitive to other people and accepting it as a way of life. I think that's the way I see modesty anyway. Mm. And uh, what is modesty in behavior? Oh, modesty in behavior, I think, is really, really important. And in a way, I think it's it's like what I just said, really. It's mm. about reading the room or being aware of what you can and cannot do. I mean, we had a an awful example of it recently at the, the women's soccer football team mm. where somebody behaved in a very bad way. That was not modest. And I think that... Modesty and behavior is incredibly important. It's it's about honoring people. I think the word actually modesty and honor are very, very closely related, aren't they? And I think it's about honoring the company that you're with and accepting what it expects of you and, and behaving accordingly, really. I agree with that. And uh, Anthea, why is... Uh, sorry, Anthea, is it, your name is Anthea, right? Yes, 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 that's fine. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. So, Anthea, why is modest behavior important for both men and women? I think because, the, you know, the world is made up of half men and half women. I think it's really important that we honor each other and we honor each other equally. So I think that modest behavior, you know, between both men and women is really, really important, whether we're in the company of, of somebody of the opposite or whether, in fact, we are with other women in my case or, in your case, with other men. In all cases, um, whoever we are with, I think modesty is really, really important. It is a form of respect and honor, and I think it actually raises human behavior um, to another level, and I think it's important. I think it's really important. 
But what if someone is stopped of being modest? Like in France, we we have this current issue that in school uh, they are not allowed to uh, do wear uh, do wear the abaya, which is a way to show modesty. Um, what do you think about the thought about that? That they are banning these things and they are basically stopping people to do so. I don't think that anybody should be stopped from doing something that is customary to their life. I think that's completely mm. wrong. I think it's really important to honor people everywhere hmm. everywhere and i think i mean this is i'm speaking to you as an interfaith minister when we walk into the world we are we're walking into a global environment and we're walking into societies that have different standards and different ways of thinking about what modesty might be or what respect is we we must look at every group and we must relate to it with honor and respect and so i personally think that you know in a global society we must accept everybody's um ways of being and conduct and manners of doing things and honor them i think that's very important and i think modesty is part of that so i feel very passionately about that so you know when i when i go into the mosque i cover my head mm. um but when i go into somewhere else um if i go into a church i will I will dress modestly, but mm. I don't need to cover my head. But it is very, very important to honor people and to accept what is really fundamental and really important in their lives. I think, as I say this as an interfaith minister, and I feel it very passionately, that we need to accept each other. And I think maybe children should have lessons at school about this, mm. maybe, you know. Mm. And I have actually been to a school where they do do this to a certain extent, where they the groups get together and they talk about different lifestyles and then they honor each other in this way and i think awesome. if we could do this as a natural way of living it it would make our lives so much nicer truly truly um and there um does modesty and behavior have significance in many areas of life terribly important terribly terribly important you know i think that quite honestly mm -hmm. if it was if it was actually part of everybody's life, I don't think there would be the kind of wars or the kind of conflicts that we see. I mean, we're seeing some horrible conflicts at the moment between, you know, all over the world, terrible conflicts that really break my heart. But these are really based on the fact that people will not understand each other or understand the similarities between each other or understand how important it is to honor each other's specific ways of life. And I think, you know, we, we must learn to do this. It really, really is. It's terribly important. It's so important. I, I just feel it's something we've got to do and we've got to learn and we've got to teach our children to do it. Amazing, mm. true. And there, um, I don't know if you know, uh, if you're aware of the Ahmadiyya community, but we have a certain auxiliary organization for men and women. And uh, I don't know if you have visited a mosque before of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, but if you go, if you do so, if you have the time, um, we will be happy to welcome you as well. You will see that um, our the, the female auxiliary organization called Lajna Imala are very active. And uh, even though they're wearing the hijab and they dress modest as well, even though, but they're very active as well and very talented, talented and very educated as well and they have been like for a long time now being part of the, the society of the united kingdom as well so um mm -hmm. i would uh, like i would welcome you as well to um visit one of our mosques and to um engage with one of our uh, uh, female members as well you will i mean you will enjoy it as well i'm pretty sure 
I, ha- I have I have visited the mosque in Brighton because I live in Brighton, and we have a, a wonderful. Well, we have several mosques here, but the one I have visited is is just absolutely fabulous. It's very very involved with the community at large. When we had the pandemic, um, the mosque actually fed a lot of people in the mm. NHS. And um, I know that they have a um, really good football club for young people who, who may not know what to do with themselves and things like that. And I have met um, quite a few, I've actually met quite a few of the women and know some of them. One of them is a very close friend, in fact, um, okay, from, from the mosque. So I, I hold it in enormous respect. And it is a great mosque because it is it is very much in the heart of Brighton and people really, really respect it and love it. And, you know, one of the things that happened during the pandemic, um, the imam stood actually in the street and, and did the call to prayer. And many, many people stood in the street and listened to this and were deeply moved because we weren't allowed to visit places of, of of prayer, you know, as you know, during the pandemic, mm. he, he stood in the street, and it was a great moment, and it was really important to the people of Brighton and Hove, and of course the community, the Islamic community were there, but also the people were there, and so in a moment of deep spirituality, something was shared with with you know very very widely. It was a great moment, and we we are really quite passionate, I think, about our Islamic community in Brighton. It's a wonderful community, and I have enormous respect for it. It really is a great community. Thank you for that. Thank you. Um, Anthea Balham, I wish you all the best, and thank you for joining The Voice of Islam Radio as well. Thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, the listeners, you just listened to Anthea Balham. One thing I just want to hi- uh, point out is that uh, when she would go to the mosque, she would also cover her. This is the way she respect she also showed towards us as well, and this is why, you, you know, I'm... I'm very grateful for that as well. Um, dear listeners, um, I just, we, we're going to a uh, pre-recording. Be- before that, I just want to say that the reason um, our ladies are covering the head is because they're following also the noble character of Mary, mother of Jesus. Um, I will come to that point later on as well, but before that, um, just uh, we, I want to, show, want to play a uh, sh- pre-recording, which is also very interesting. So do me a favor, stay in tune with Voice on Radio. Dear listeners, uh, I'm very grateful to have with me uh, Miss Maruf Arif Tayyip, who is a writer, blogger, and has experience in journalism. She also, she's also the author of the English book Amdis and Muslim Identity in Diaspora, published by the Ahmadan. Maruf Arif Tayyip, good morning and welcome to the Breakfast Show. Good morning, Jazakla, for having me. Um, no, it's a pleasure to have you with us. Um, it is about, about modesty, and um, I just want you to know, I'll just come straight for the first question, that how does modesty help with respecting each other? So, um, it, interestingly, if we, if we look at the, um, at the etymology of the word modesty, uh, in English, it comes, it comes from Latin, the Latin word modestus, which means keeping within measure. So, yeah. if we take it literally, is is the act of behaving in a way um, that is um, that avoids too much, you know, leaning on another person or respecting, having boundaries with other people. So this is what uh, modesty, like a modest behavior, is: is keeping your bordering, staying within your measure, and uh, keeping within your measure. 
And in, in regards, can you give some example as well? You showed that it means also respecting each other. Can you give it, can you give us, give us some examples? So, um, um, modesty as a way of life. So that that's how uh, it's about respecting other people, respecting oneself as well. From if if we look at the more religious meaning, um, it, it's it's a way to protect oneself from um, sin and also showing respect for God and the the word of God. So behaving with other people with utmost respect uh, while um keeping your um so your boundaries and also uh, dressing in a way that is um uh that is that would honor your body and not placing it on display for others uh and this is what um also in the islamic faith this is what modesty is is um can be defined as it's it's a way of dressing and uh, behaving in a way that you honor yourself uh, in a dignified manner uh, with for yourself and with other people and it's uh, a way of um, showing to uh, yourself and to the world that your body uh, is sacred and should be respected and uh, such as your personality your, your personality as well should display that sort of um, dignity um and that um respect that you have for yourself and other people i understand um Maruch, um how would you define the significance of modesty so uh that's what i that's what I, i'm saying that modesty can be so it, there's a you know there's very interesting the, the significance of modesty can be there's a very um, interesting you know saying in French that goes like uh, la vie ne fait pas le moine, so which can be translated literally as the clothing the clothing does not make the monk. So if you if you analyze it, it's a bit like being modest is not just in your should should be in your personality, but it should reflect should should not only be sorry in your clothing, but it should also reflect in your personality. So if somebody is dressed very modestly uh, in a dignified manner but does not behave in a dignified manner, his, he, he cannot be defined as a modest person. Um, however, if somebody is dressed in a modest manner and also behaving in a, in a modest manner, then the inner and the outer is, um, is not in conflict. And that's how you attain true modesty, when um, you're not only respecting yourself and uh, telling you know, by your dressing that I am a person who respects myself and who honor myself, and I do not uh, want my body to be um, on display for others. But I also respect you, and I also respect your views, how you see yourself, um, and how you um, you are, you know, going to me. So it's it's a, it's a bit of um, modesty is how you are. Uh, it's your inner self and your outer outer self being, you know, at um, not being at odds with each other and both should be reflecting the other. Interesting. No. Um uh, interesting. Um what would you say if let's say someone is not sure about the importance of modesty? How it's would you advise what would you advise him? Well as everybody wants to be uh, respected in a way. I mean if if we look at modesty not as a um, I mean, we're not saying, you know, that uh, 
we're not forcing upon anybody to be uh, modest. Being modest is a way of life that is very attainable and leads to more peaceful society because you are actually respecting one another. And when we start respecting um, each other's bodies, each other's choices, each other's, you know, uh, how, when we start honoring ourselves, then then we can honor other people's choices and other people's, you know, um, uh, other people's, uh, yeah, choices. And if we b- behave in a dignified manner, then that would lead to a more dignified society and therefore a peaceful society. That's why it's really important to um, be modest. Understand. Now, um, just one question. One last question. In regards of France, we have seen now recently, even we have seen it throughout the year that France has banned certain things like wearing niqab or wearing the bukina, and if someone do so, it would be fine. Now they have decided to ban wearing uh, to ban abaya, which is basically an Islamic way of clothing as well. Um, right. What would you say? What would you say, like from someone who's living like in France, uh, for a woman? What would you advise them? How would should they act now? Because few people are also saying that you know what should leave France now. But what would you advise people Muslim living in France now? Or what would or basically what would you advise the French people? Um, it's very unfortunate uh, what is happening in in my birth country, uh, and it you know it saddens me to the to the deepest uh, at the deepest level. Uh, but what we should remember is that the abaya is one way. Of dressing modesty, we cannot say that it is the Islamic way. By saying that, I mean that there is still, you know, women in France. They would find a way to dress modestly, other than uh, wearing a specific abaya. You know, they would find a way to to to, to dress modestly. Uh, it's really wrong when we when when they're banning that. Is that they're saying that you know they're using the same argument that abaya is an Islamic clothing or is directly linked to the religion of Islam, which is false. Uh, the argument that, you know, the French government is using and they want to ban it in schools uh, specifically because they believe that it goes against secularism. Uh, but that argument is flawed because there's no mention of the abaya anywhere. Uh, there's only mentioned, the only thing that the Quran mentions about women clothing uh, is to dress modestly. Uh, mm. So you and and that is advised for uh, to dress modestly and to behave modestly, and it's very important to mention that that the Quran does not genderize the the, the concept of modesty. So it it does not only apply to women; it applies to men as well. And it is men are for, first and foremostly um, addressed in the Quran, um, and they're, they're they're told you know to lower their gaze and. Uh, behave in an, in, a, in an appropriate manner. So that goes into the modesty part. And then the women are addressed. Um, and it goes on to say that it's, it's a natural way of saying that, you know, women should dress modestly in Islam as men. Men also should dress modestly. I mean, the emphasis is given on both genders. Um, and therefore, um, in Islam, it's, it's, it's quite clear that modesty is a way of life. Uh, and it is a way of, you know, uh, uh, getting dressed. But um, it is not the abaya is not something that is purely Islamic. It's wrong to say that. Uh, it's a way of, it's, it's an interpretation of dressing modesty. So it's a convenient way because it's it's a loose uh, clothing. 
uh, and therefore it is modest because it does not um, allow to reveal, you know, uh, much of the woman's body. But French, uh, French Muslim women will find another way to dress modestly. Uh, if you wear loose, fitted uh, uh, um, clothing uh, without necessarily wearing an abaya, you, you can still consider modest. Um, and that's how we should follow that practice of the Holy Quran, you know, where the emphasis is about how you behave first. Mm-hmm. It, should be, it should always, um, you know, behave in a dignified manner and take all these, all these legislations in a dignified manner. So respect uh, the law of the country if it, if it is to be passed. They should respect that because it doesn't really matter at the end. Uh, French, uh, the French government isn't going to, uh, they should be, you know, policing. They shouldn't be policing women's clothing for sure. It, it is wrong and it is important to say that. But they've, they've gotten to a point where it's, it's actually ridiculous. When you're saying, when you're banning the abaya in schools and saying that, you know, it, it is linked to Islam, it will not stop Muslim women from dressing modestly, such as. Uh, similarly, you know, when they banned the, the niqab and uh, the hijabs in school, it did not stop Muslim women to job outside schools. Uh, I was one of them. This legislation mm-hmm. didn't stop me from dressing modest or giving up on my hijab. It did not. You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text as this is a recording and lines are now closed. In the name of Allah, the most gracious, ever merciful, dear listeners, you just listened to an inter- uh, pre-recording interview of Maruch um, Abdeeb. And uh, dear listeners, in the end, she said that uh, the hijab or the veil is basically for, first of all, for men. No, basically, but first of all, for men. So it is said also in the Holy Quran that to the believing men that they strain their eyes and guard their private parts. This is pure for them. Surely Allah is well aware of what they do. So men are commanded to restrain their eyes. And similarly, when a man sees a woman wearing the uh, Islamic uh, veil or Islamic way of clothing, she is basically teaching the man that, listen, I'm not an object, I'm a human being, and I want to be respected like that. I'm not saying that every man uh, f- uh, think that uh, if he sees the ha- hair of a woman, thinks that she's beautiful or etc. Or uh, but it is basically, tell Islam is telling us, explaining us that women are there to build a society by telling or teaching the men how to react towards certain women and to be gentle to them. So this is why women are very important in, in Islamic society as well. And this is why we say that women should be a big part for the Islamic society as well. Because the Prophet, peace be upon him, when he built up Mecca, when he built up the Saudi Arabia society, he he first gave the rights to the women and then start building up a society. So you can't prosper without uh, women as well. And women are basically, as I said, teaching the men as well how to behave. In the end, I just want to say that I mentioned before, women are wearing the veil because they follow the noble character of Mary, mother of Jesus. And dear listeners, you might be surprised to hear that the whole chapter, the chapter 19 of the Holy Quran, is named after Mary. And you, in that chapter, you can read how much respect we have given to, the, to her. And uh, you can read also about the birth of Jesus, Prophet Jesus, Islam. Um, there's so many things the Quran has mentioned about that noble lady, Mary, and Islam has also told us that we should take her as one of our role models. Dear listeners, I'm 
concluding and in the end just want to conclude that modesty is a very important for us especially in Islamic religion as well and you shouldn't just look at the way someone is wearing his, his clothes or the way she or her are addressing you should look at the skills she, uh, he or she have because this is the most important thing now coming to our next segment which is pretty privileged uh, dear listeners in our society We face many forms of discrimination simply based on one's physical appearance. We have discussed in um, previous shows about bullying due to disabilities and racism. Now, today we want to uh, look about pretty privilege. Now, this refers to a concept used to examine the economic, social and political advantage that are made to both man and woman solely based on their physical appearance. Now we want to look at it in a deeper analy- and at it in a deeper deeper analyze how and how true it is. How can it be recognized and does better looking always come with privilege? For that dear listeners we have prepared also a pre recording interview um with Professor Daniel. So do me a favor do you enjoy uh, that recording and say to Mr. Voice of Sam Radio. Dear listeners, I'm very delighted to have with me Professor Daniel Samamesh, an emeritus professor of economics at Royal Holloway University of London and the University of Texas at Austin. Dear listeners, he also saw, taught at Michigan State University, Princeton University and has held visiting professorship at universities in Europe, Asia and Australia. His his AB is from the University of Chicago and his PhD from Yale. Now, dear listeners, his research published in over 100 referred papers in scholarly journals has concentrated on time use, labor demand, discrimination, academic labor market and unusual application of labor economics. Professor Daniel, uh, welcome to the Breakfast Show. Thank you for having me, sir. Uh, I'm actually very delighted to have you with me because, um, Professor, you wrote a book, and the name of the book is very interesting. It's Beauty Ba Beauty Base. So um, I just want you to know that, uh, or if you could outline the motivation for your book and what led you to this subject. <laughs> sure. I got started on this subject, I think, in 1992. Just by chance, I noticed that some data were available in some other work I was doing in which interviewers rated the beauty of people they were interviewing. And I thought it'd be pretty neat to look at how that affects the amount people earn, everything else even. Uh, we published that first paper in 94 in the most widely read journal in economics, published a number of other papers, over the period of good grief, 15 years, at which point my wife said, Daniel, why don't you write a book on this? Mm-hmm. And I said, yeah, good idea. So the book was suggested by my wife to summarize not just our research, but the research of a whole bunch of other people. Amazing. So uh, I'm glad your wife advised you to do so because I thought this uh, book is very interesting. Um, Could you outline how beauty was defined in your research and was there any difference between man and woman as to how much how much they were paid and the benefits to which they were entitled to? Surely. There are various ways of measuring beauty, and indeed I've done two out of the three in my own research. The first is simply at the end or start of an interview of somebody, the person doing the interviewing rates that interviewee on some scale from five, four, three, two, one, or 10 to zero, whatever. The other is to have a number of people look at pictures of subjects 
and do the rating themselves on some scale. It turns out that even though people look at people differently, they don't look at them very much differently. So that if you were to look at somebody and I would look at somebody, even though we're ethnically somewhat different, it most often if I've said the person was pretty good looking, you would say the same thing. And inversely, if you thought they weren't bad looking, we tend to agree on what's beautiful. So my line, which I've used now many times is, yeah, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. We all know that phrase, but we tend to behold it very similarly. I know if you walk down the street with somebody else, don't do this. But if you walk down the street with somebody else and you both look at somebody and say, hey, this is what they're good looking or not good looking, you tend to agree. So I don't think measurement's a problem. The question is, having done those ratings, how different are men and women who are good-looking or not good-looking treated? And the answer is the effects are substantial, perhaps going from the bottom bottom one-sixth of men to the top third, maybe a difference of 10% in earnings, given their education, their age, et cetera. The women, somewhat less, most studies find. In other words, in terms of their jobs, beauty seems less important for women than it does for men which might be a bit surprising. Yeah, it is. So, um, Professor, you know, for, for many years, what I've observed is the fashion industry has used what may constitute as extremely glamorous models to showcase their products. So is this really as outrageous as it appears, or should we accept that humans will always have a preference? That's a tough question. It's really two questions in one. So far, mm-hmm. human preferences for beauty have been pretty similar. I mean, standards change. It used to be 150 years ago that people thought that somebody who was quite overweight was good looking because overweight was a symbol of health. Uh, today, that's not true anymore, if anything, the contrary. So standards do change, and they used to differ a lot across countries. But whichever the standard is, and today it's an international standard, Uh, people want to look at good-looking models. And the fact that fashion industry uses good-looking models is a natural way of attracting your attention to the products that they're trying to offer. I remember one advertisement had three women advertising. I can't remember what it was. Uh, One was Asian. One was of African origin. One was Northern European. And I've seen others with actually Middle Eastern models, too. In all the cases, you, I, and everybody else would say, yeah, these are very good-looking people, and therefore we would want to try to think about purchasing what they're trying to sell. Is this outrageous? Yes, in some sense, but it's what companies do to make money to sell their products. So currently, I think I would accept it. I would hope that someday, though, that people would be less concerned about looks and that it wouldn't matter so much. But that day is not going to happen in my lifetime, probably not in yours either. So it means that we will have to wait even more than 100 years for a change then? <laughs> I think we'll have to wait a lot longer than that, but I hope that someday that comes, that people don't care much about looks as they appear to now. But is this like since, like, uh, since the beginning of the earth that people always look to beautiful things, beautiful people instead of like looking to other people? Certainly that's the case, and I think it's always been the case. I view it as somewhat unfortunate. I mean, why this happens, it used to be that beauty 
and perfect features, lack of uh, facial problems, was an indicator that one was good for reproduction, one would produce healthy, successful children. That's not true anymore. I mean, everybody can produce a healthy child. Most people in most Western and even Middle Eastern countries and even less developed countries are pretty healthy. But uh, nonetheless, we have this ancient thing stuck in our brains that beauty is somehow good and we tend to pay attention to beautiful people more than we do to less good looking people. Understand and um, coming back uh, to the actual like uh, uh, topic, like uh, what's happening now in this day and age. Do you think that this uh, practice breach equality laws? And can you describe this as discrimination as well? <laughs> that is a, the most difficult question you've asked. Uh, is that. it discrimination? <laughs> is it discrimination? Yes, I'm distinguishing between people. Mm. along a characteristic which shouldn't really affect their productivity as employer employees. Nonetheless, employers know that hiring the beautiful people will make the employer more money. So yes, it's, it's discrimination. There are very few places where such discrimination is outlawed. The real issue, should there be outlawing of such discrimination, Uh, my feeling is it's really no different from any other legal prohibition on discrimination. The question is, where do you want to spend your political energy? You want to spend energy outlawing discrimination based on ethnicity, race, or gender, mm -hmm. which I do, or do you want to spend the energy, which is limited, outlawing discrimination based on looks? I don't want to outlaw discrimination based on looks because we already outlaw a lot of things that I care more about, and I want to do that rather than spend energy outlawing discrimination. But it's a subtle issue, as I've indicated. Interesting. And Professor, last question. And I think this question might be difficult as well, so I apologize already. <laughs> But is there any cue? Because if you, you already said that even in 100 years, it won't change. But do you think that just as an advice for people who are living now in this day and age and for people who will live after 100 years. Is there any advice you can give that we can, uh, not just looking at the beauty, but at the productive thing? Yes, I mean, there's two issues there. One, I would urge employers to spend more time thinking about what the person can really do for them. But I think the better side to operate on is to tell individuals who are not good looking, you know, looks matter, but so do a whole bunch of other things. And you mm. should spend your time developing those areas in which you are likely to be more successful. Your intelligence, your good nature, your ability to sing, your ability to deal with people, all kinds of non-beauty things that we differ on, which are not correlated with beauty. And that if you have them, you should take advantage of them if you haven't got the beauty to take advantage of. Interesting, no, true. Uh, Professor, uh, You, you feel is very interesting. Um, I hope the listener will listen to that and that we can learn from that as well. Uh, thank you for joining, and I hope we can have you one day again on The Breakfast Show. Great. Thank you for having me. You take care. You too. Thank you. Bye. Dear listeners, you just listened to a pre-recording with Professor Daniel. And uh, dear listeners, he said it in the end, just look at his skills, look at the credibility someone has. 
instead of the look. Um, you know, this is something you know, Islam has highlighted many times as well, and very beautifully. I just wanted to come to that point now from the Islamic perspective, what Islam basically says. For example, you know, it is like what I was told in the, right in the beginning when I was born, listen, son, Islam teaches that all human beings are equal in the eyes of Allah, and their worth is determined by their piety and character not their physical appearance. Now, this, has, this emphasizes the spiritual importance of inequalities. The Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace be uh, upon him, he said once that Allah does not look at your forms and your position, but he looks at your hearts and your deeds. So it is more like to be righteous, more like to be, be spiritually inclined instead of being looking beautiful or try to look beautiful. And also, you know, dear listeners, Islam emphasizes the importance of inner beauty, which include quality like humility, kindness, and compassion. The Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, said, The most perfect believer in faith is the one whose character is finest and whose, whose kindness to his wife. Also, dear listeners, Islam promotes fair judgment and treating others with equity. Now, making judgment solely based on physical appearance goes against the principle of justice and respect. To a Quran states, O ye who believe, be steadfast in the cause of Allah, bearing witness in equity, and let not a people's enmity incite you to do to act otherwise than with justice. Be always just, that is near to righteousness, and fear Allah. Surely Allah is aware of what you do. Now, while jealousy is a natural human emotion, Islam teaches the importance of controlling it. And we can lead to negative actions and feelings. But the Holy Prophet he's basically also warned us against envy by saying, Beware, envy consumes consumes good deeds just as fire consumes wood. So basically, he also said that, basically, the everything I'm just read out or just explained is that Islam says, look at the inner beauty, look at the spirituality someone has, look at the righteousness someone has, look at the quality of someone has. This is what we need, and this is again, as I said, Holy Prophet peace be upon him. He built up a society as well, and uh, this is how he did. This is how he, because he looked at the qualities of someone, and but also in, in the uh, he looked after the inner spirituality, the inner beauty someone has. This is the most important thing, and for a person, for a religious person, he will always try to be beautiful from the inside instead of from the outside. Um, Dear listeners, just to sum it up, you know, Islam emphasizes modesty and respecting the personal boundaries of others. Harassment, whether due to physical appearance or any other reason, is strictly prohibited. The Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, said also once, whoever believes in Allah in the last day, let him not harm his neighbor. And I remember, dear listeners, best example we have is Hazrat Bilal. He was, like, people would mock him before he became a Muslim and he wouldn't be... He, he wouldn't be treated as a human being because of the way he was looking. He was from a different race as well, from a different color as well. But Islam gave him honor. Islam gave him dignity and respect. And this is, uh, you know, this is what we say. This is why Islam is so important for this society as well. Because this is what this is what we say. This is what Islam emphasizes to look at the inner beauty. This is, I just want to summarize everything. Jesus says. As I said, if you want to be a part of the show, if you want to talk about modesty, what what is important to be modest, or what do you think about modesty, you can call in any time. The number is 0208-687-787, or you can go on our socials at Voice of Islam UK. 
Now, dear listeners, um, I don't know how many of you are watching Netflix, um, but there have been two shows which are known as the Indian matchmaking and the Jewish matchmaking. Today, we will, uh, as today is uh, the National Matchmaker Day, we will discuss this topic now as well. Um, so, just coming to the gist of the story, dear listeners. Now, as human beings, we tend to ask for help for a lot of things. Because we're human beings, and God has said human beings are weak, so they need help sometimes. So we ask someone if you can recommend a place to eat, something to watch, or what to wear. And have you ever heard of someone asking for help to find the right one? I mean, this is a silly question, if you have ever heard about this before. Um, this day is for those who help to set two people up, arrange a match for a family member, or coach clients as part of their professional services. Recently, as I said before, there are Netflix documentaries about that uh, and a movie called What's, uh, What's Love Got to Do With It uh, by screenwriter uh, Jamima Khan. So today, dear listeners, now what we do, we're going we're gonna to analyze everything. We're going to talk about people who basically are working in these business and uh, we will ask them what they do and we will ask about them what they have like felt and about the experience um, throughout the year or throughout the time. Uh, as I said, this is very important because there are people and there are two kind of marriages. We can say one who arranged marriage and then which are love marriage. And we will also discuss which of them are more successful. Um, dear listeners, now going further, uh, we will have now our first guest, but before that, I just want to mention one um, saying of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. He said that uh, the paradise lies under the feet of your mother, right? It means that you should honor your mother, you should help your mother, you should serve your mother, etc. And if someone, for example, starts a business with her name or give, uh, trying to help someone with her name by just, for example, starting a business or giving charity in her name, this is also very much honored as well. Now, I'm mentioning this because th the next guest we have is Parag. Uh, Parag Bargava and uh, Parag Bargava has established a business which uh, is named uh, um, after the mother of uh, Parag Bargava, Suman Marriage Bureau. And uh, I'm very delighted to say that we have uh, Parag Bargava right now with us. Um, about Suman Marriage Bureau, it's an offline based service and matches people according to their respective details and requirements without exchanging photo. No, Parag has knowledge of the business since inception and in fact did an interview at the age of nine for the Sun newspaper when it was the year of the woman's lip. And as my parents were being driven to the various TV and radio station for interview, my wife, whom he met at the front door of our offices and are now running the business together as my parents have both passed away and we, and we are arranging marriage of men and women whose parents were introduced by my parents. Now, Parag personally became fully involved in the business around 1996 when he said, when I started publishing a matrimonial magazine and a year later started hosting single events. Now, having said this, I also looked after the business prior to 1996 on many occasions when my parents were traveling and also assisted with the computer and implementation and advert design, etc., as well as setting up the online presence just when the internet started to become popular in the mid to late 90s. Parag Pargava, it's very interesting, you and Chu. And I'm also very happy to welcome you to our breakfast show. Good morning, and uh, I hope you had a pleasant um, morning. 
Yes, good morning. Assalamu alaikum to all your guests and your uh, listeners. Um, Barak, um, could you out, uh, please co outline your uh, principal motivation for starting such a business? Yeah, so basically the business uh, which is named after mother was actually started by my mother, Suman. Um, she used to, back in the early 70s, late 60s, early 70s, you know, we had a few families from various religious backgrounds who were settled in this country, um, but they uh, needed uh, for children to be learning their mother tongue, and my mother used to teach at the local temple. Um, but the individuals that she was teaching, they were in their sort of late teens, early 20s, and parents used to approach her, you know, do you know a boy for my girl, do you know a girl for my boy? Now, back in that time, religion was never an issue for anybody. If you were of brown skin, mm. uh, you were the same. And it was an open-door policy. So irrespective of what religious background you were, your neighbors, whether they were Hindu, Muslim, Sikh, Christian, uh, Asian background, you would just go over, have a cup of tea, have a chat. So word spread very quickly within the community, the immigrants that were settling in this country, that there is this lady in Slough uh, who can help you find a match. Um, so then in 1972, December, uh, my mother set up the Summon Marriage Bureau um, with a nominal fee at that time, and uh, gradually the business picked up because it was the first Asian marriage bureau of its kind in the UK. Interesting. And um, could you also please break down the steps of match matchmaking and how do you approach <coughs> your clients and help them find a match? Okay, so we are either approached by individuals who are looking for a service to provide the introductions, mm -hmm. or sometimes we, uh, we're, my wife and I, my family have very social, we go to various events and uh, societies and organizations, and we sometimes come across uh, young boys and girls and find out that they're looking for partners or people approach us. So we have an application form where we capture details of the applicant, uh, details about their family background, and details as to what kind of a partner they're looking for. Um, and uh, we request a photograph, but only for our records. And that's a quite a key point, that we don't exchange photos, which I'll explain in a few minutes. Uh, but basically, once we have all the details, then we look for suitable candidates through our files, uh, ensure that the boys' details match the girls, the girls' details match the boys, and then we provide the introduction. Introductions are done in one of two ways. We either send details directly to both boy and girl, and they can then contact each other and arrange to meet. Or on occasion, we also arrange the meetings where we are present mm -hmm. to actually meet them, introduce them to one another, and then leave them to chat. And the reason we do that, because in today's society, unfortunately, social media has become a very big problem. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, people are very busy with work and other commitments. They don't realize how much time is dedicated on their WhatsApps and on their telephones. Um, and they don't prioritize meeting a potential partner. And then time is moving on, and they're losing very good opportunities. Interesting. And uh, you're talking, you were just mentioning social media as well. I just want to stick on to that. Um, there yeah. are now dating apps as well and websites, which are very prominent. Now, how do mm. you feel you service, like, do you feel any difference between them and you service? And what are some of the challenges that you are experiencing now? Yeah, most definitely. So first of all, our service is a very personal service, and we also provide a lot of uh, support morally to individuals. Uh, people are having difficulty on uh, how to meet people, how to speak people. You know, we, we've had clients who are six-figure earners um, coming to our office okay. for a meeting, and two minutes before the meeting, they're saying, Parag, what do we talk about? Because, you know, in personal life, nobody is born with the skills of how to form a relationship. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the biggest problems with social media is the photograph. Mm 
Um, it's so easy to take a selfie, post it online, you know, on WhatsApp, people have selfies. What individuals don't realize that it may not be the best um, representation of what they are like, what they look like. Now, when you take a, a selfie, quite often it's close up, so you can look fatter than what you are. Uh, you might be blocking the light. You can look darker than what you are. And then a lot of people will tilt their neck or head, so you may look like you have a squint or your nose is wonky. What individuals, youngsters, singletons need to realize that they are marrying a human being, somebody they want to spend the rest of their life. It's not something like a car you can buy today and then tomorrow wake up and think, oh, I want to change my car. So with a human being, with a person that's going to live next to you by your side, it's not just about their appearance. And like your earlier uh, caller has said, your recording, you know, you have to know about the person, their personality, their mm -hmm. nature, their mannerisms, their intelligence, their sense of humor. Those are the qualities that you are living with, which are built into that person. The appearance and the looks can change over time. Somebody can look better after marriage. Somebody can look worse after mm -hmm. marriage. Mm -hmm. So the important factor is that people should meet. The problem with social media it's like window shopping so you know you have all these swipe left swipe right or everyone's put up a profile picture they think it's a nice picture of themselves sometimes it's a comical picture these are not conducive to finding a partner and seriously settling down for life so with our service whilst we request a photo it's just as a guideline or if we've met somebody serves as a memory but we emphasize that when we provide an introduction to people or uh, they should actually meet face to face and then see if they want to meet further and take things further and um uh, Barak, i just want to know uh, love marriage and arranged marriage which of them are more successful do you have any idea well Look, both of them are successful, but arranged marriages tend to break down a lot less okay. because with arranged marriages, you are starting from the foundation onwards. If you consider marriage to be a house, so mm. what you are doing from the start is you are building the house. Now, in the love marriage, the house is already built. Yeah, how many doors, windows, curtains, what kind of roof, it's all there. It's just about moving together because you like the look of the house, you're moving in. With the arranged marriage, you're starting from the foundations. So you're starting from the backgrounds, whether it's caste, community, religion. You're building up the house slowly. Then you're getting to know about the person's age, height, education, occupation. You're getting to know about the two families as well. So the, the structure of that house is a lot stronger. So with the love marriage, the house is ready built. You like what you see or you don't. And it's normally a physical attraction. With the arranged marriage, you're building up from scratch. So when you then have that earthquake or when you have that typhoon, that's the real test of whether those walls of that house are going to withstand it and, and carry on afterwards. So with the arranged marriage, because you've got the family support, you've got the compatible backgrounds, they're a much stronger foundation. It's more likely to last. So that is the why the arranged marriages, and to be honest, arranged marriages exist in all communities in one way, shape, or form. Mm -hmm. You know, even Harry and Meghan had an arranged marriage. Mm -hmm. you, when your friends are introducing you to somebody, that is indirectly an arranged marriage. The difference is that we are matchmakers. We are a marriage bureau and introduction agency, so that is what we... We are doing full-time rather than just occasionally saying, oh, here's my friend X, here's my friend Y, why don't you meet up with each other? You're quite compatible. So that is why arranged marriages are stronger. I'm not saying love marriages don't exist. There are people with very long love marriages, but arranged marriages generally will tend to be more successful. Interesting. No, it's very, very interesting, especially what you just mentioned in the end. Uh, it was very interesting about that um, arranged marriage are like existing are in different shape as well um parag uh, thank you for you your thought and uh, your time as well i really enjoyed uh, listening to you and i wish you all the best for the future and for your business as well 
Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Bye-bye. So, dear listeners, you just listened to Parag, uh, and he's had one thing. Again, I just want to highlight this, that arranged marriage do exist, and someone is even involved in arranged marriage, even though he doesn't know it, that when he just uh, motivates his friends to meet with someone else who maybe is a good link for him. So, this is kind of arranged marriage as well, like he just gave the example of Harry and Kate. Um, dear listeners, um Going from Parag, we are coming now to Andrew Parker Dennis, who is an entrepreneur and a businessman, and joined a professional matchmaker in November 2020. And a leading figure in the luxury brand world, Andrew brings a wealth of experience in customer care and business philosophy. Um, Andrew, good morning and welcome to The Breakfast Show. Good morning. Thanks for having me on today. Pleasure. It's my pleasure as well. Um, Andrew, um, I just want to know that what were the key aspects which drew you into becoming a matchmaker? Um, well, I've always worked within the service industry um, and worked closely with the general public. And I felt working within the matchmaking arena was something that I could lend my experience to. Um, and it's the opportunity to give people and to provide people with with the opportunity to find love that can genuinely change the direction of their lives. I think especially since, you know, COVID and the, and the way in which it's impacted on how people can meet and, and the opportunity they have. Interesting. And Andrew, are there some do's and don'ts of matchmaking? Um, yeah, I think, you know, the do's and don'ts tend to reflect each other quite quite significantly i think in order to to provide a good a good matchmaking service i think you know listening to people understanding the needs giving them guidance because a lot of people come to us you know a little bit nervous a little bit apprehensive perhaps for, I've, I've come from divorces or perhaps haven't had that opportunity through work to to meet that special person so supporting them and giving them the guidance um is incredibly important the other thing that i feel every matchmaking um, company should be providing is, is security checks, which we do through um, a company called LexisNexis, which checks for checks for authenticity and also, you know, solvency. And, that, you know, they are who they say they are, which is such a concern with online dating. I think the don'ts is just to presume and be average. You know, what we, what we always strive to achieve is, is success for everybody who joins us. Um, and to give them that that safe opportunity to to, to meet somebody. And uh, and I just want to know that because uh, you've been there now uh, uh, since November 2020. Uh, did it ever happen that some of the couple came to you and saying that listen, you basically brought us together just to appreciate what you have done for them? Yeah, we get a lot of feedback. To be fair, regarding that, obviously our, our service is incredibly discreet. Um, it's for people who don't particularly want to find their profiles online, don't want to put themselves out there to the hazards of of online dating. So, yeah, we do we do have some incredible success stories where people have got married, gone on to have children, and 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 often it does change their perception of of meeting somebody. Because as we know, you know, we think we know what we want, but actually love can come in many different forms. So being open to that process is incredibly important. But yes, success, we we, we, we see a lot of success coming through. Amazing. And Andrew, what do you enjoy the most about your role? You know what? I love working 
directly with 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 people i think being able to celebrate when when people do get that success you know see seeing people's lives genuinely change for the better is something that can't can't be bought and can't be measured it's just such a fantastic feeling and you know being able to deliver a positive service um again is something that's very close to my heart Interesting, no, interesting. And um, Andrew, now, how do you see the short to midterm future for you? Like, how can you remain relevant in an ever increasing and competitive market? You know what? That's a really good question. And I think, you know, for us since COVID, um, the opportunity for people to meet has really depleted. You know, when you think that online dating apps there used to be 17 million people on there that's Mm. dropped to five million in recent times with one in five being fake profiles and of course with the influence of ai coming through Mm. i see that i see that gathering speed as well so that those fake profiles are going to be even more harder to navigate through so we have seen growth exponential growth really over the last two years um in the service that we provide because Obviously, this is this is this is something that's gone on for generations. You know, I did hear part of the previous um, interview, and yeah, I think it's matchmaking has always been there. It did take a decline through the '90s when apps and online dating came into place, but people now are gravitating back to that more traditional and bespoke method of meeting somebody where. You know, you've got somebody helping them and guiding them through their journey, um, taking away the fear and obviously the stress and the hard work that the apps often do. So for us, we've seen that the growth with the business um, has has been quite fast at the minute. And I, I, I would say that that will continue to do, providing that obviously we keep striving to re- provide the best service, um, which is something very close to my heart. Interesting. Um, you just mentioned also those dating apps, and uh, um, you said like uh, you already mentioned that uh, there's increase of arranged marriage. But do you still see uh, some challenges coming from the dating apps and websites? I think there's huge challenges um, to face for everybody involved. You know, I think as I said earlier, one in five profiles being reportedly fake, mm-hmm. and with the growth of AI, you know the dangers that that poses by the time you put all your details out, a photo, personal information that is basically there for everybody and anybody to see. So the dangers become greater and greater with online dating. Most people who come to us says, say, do say to us, we've tried online dating, but it's not worked. And then some of the stories that follow through that they've experienced are quite disturbing. So yeah, online dating is a dangerous area and it's something you have to be very wary of um when you are putting yourself out there in such an open manner uh this reminds me on the the netflix documentation the tinder swindler which came yeah. out last last year as well this is in regards of this, what you just mentioned about someone who just made up a fake account and uh, he basically just took the money from a few, a few ladies as well um Andrew, um, uh, it's very interesting, uh, uh, your job, uh, and uh, I really like listening to you as well. Um, I wish you all the best for the future, and I'm very grateful that you joined the Breakfast Show. Thank you for joining. No, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Take care. Take care. So, dear listeners, you just listened as well, um, especially about uh, 
what I've never thought is that I always thought that you know these ratings app and website would be very successful, but it, it appears that they are not, and um, that the matchmaking business is even more successful. So this is something you know I said in the beginning as well. We will we will look into that which is more successful, either the love marriages or the uh, engaged marriages. So. Um, you could see even you just mentioned it and uh, that the matchmaking uh, business is, m is more successful is more helpful I, I believe people should also uh, try to find a way in, uh, while asking people if they can arrange a marriage for them um dear listeners uh if you want to be a part of the show what if you thought about arranged marriage you can call in anytime you know the number is 0208 or you can go on our social at voice of uk um now jumping uh not jumping but coming Going, coming, going from Andrew Parker, we come now to San Helen King, uh, who will be our next guest on today's show. Uh, Sarah Helen is a senior matchmaker in Medin, sorry, Macklin's London office. She holds a first-class honours in psychology and a master in health psychology, following a fruitful career in stockbroking. Um, fashion retail and luxury good working with high profile clients and customers from around the globe the listener sarah helen started her own wellness business she has extensive experience coaching people to better understand themselves and teaching them how to own their psychological psychological health using a cognitive behavioral approach she has helped guide and support our McLean clients with the uh, psychological tools to date successfully. Now, um, the listeners, uh, she has two years of doctoral experience and is a member of the British Psychological Society. She's also she also sits on the committee of the Richmond and Twickenham Diabetes UK Support Group. San Holland's positive outlook, friendly approach, and deep knowledge of psychology means she is well positioned to give our clients the best possible guidance as they search for their ultimate partner. Sarah, Sarah Helen King, um, good morning and welcome to the Breakfast Show. Good morning. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. The pleasure is all mine. It's very interesting what I just read uh, about your intro. Um, Sarah, um, could you outline some of the key responsibilities of a matchmaker and draw on some of the steps undertaken to find a suitable person for your clients? Absolutely. So one of the things at Matching is we are um, agency, so we work with lots of different um, men and women from all different backgrounds, um, and we match them based on values and compatibility. So what we do is we take our clients through what we call five stages of matchmaking. So the first stage is very much about the individual understanding themselves, understanding their unique values, what you know, how they live and breathe their world, um, their beliefs, um, their family background. It's really important that you know that individual understands themselves first before they even contemplate looking for a partner. So then after we've worked with them um, uh, quite in depth, then we will move into stage two, which is all around building a profile of the type of person that they would be ideally suited to. Um, and again, this is how, you know, how we look on their values, their belief systems, their experiences, and also what links those two people together. Is it hobbies and interests? Is, and, and, and really sort of honing in on that kind of compatibility. Um, next is stage three, which is very much about understanding the relationship dynamic that will work for that in individual. 
So um, it could be like the nitty-gritty of where people are located. Um, it could be their jobs, their career, their future goals in terms of family. Um, do they want children? How are they going to raise their children? Um, then the next stage is stage four, which is implementing the search strategy. So this is where we really hone in on our key expertise. Most of our team um, have um, a psychology background um, or coaching background or are relationship experts. Um, and we have lots of tools at our capability. So we have already built up a phenomenal global network of um, single people that we can get into. But we also work as headhunters and we also um, have built up amazing collaborations with ambassadors placed all across the world and we also work really well with our partner agencies because if we can help somebody find true love, then we're all in it to kind of find that person, that success. Then stage five is very much mm -hmm. about dating with meaning and purpose. So when you actually do get, um, you do have an introduction, or you are meeting somebody that you potentially could spend the rest of your life with, it's very much about, you know, giving it a chance, putting it in commitment, um, spending time with that person to really know if, you know, if there's a strong connection there. Interesting. And um, Sarah, uh, what are some of the challenges that you encounter and how have you these, and how have these evolved through the years? You know what, that's a great question. I would say, and obviously every single human being on the planet has been affected by this, but obviously the global pandemic impacted mm. relationships greatly, not just romantic relationships, but also, you know, family relationships, working relationships. Um, but actually, one of the things that we did see that was a challenge initially, but actually was well overcome, is that in our industry, where we were still, um, people actually, we, were in, we had an influx of people wanting to join us, because actually they couldn't meet people in real life. They had lost their community kind of like, um, patterns and, and social kind of like activities that they would normally maybe meet a potential partner. So actually everything moved into online um, and actually through our agency we were able to still conduct introductions and actually it broke down some of the barriers in terms of location because people were more open-minded to meeting people in different locations. And how, how, how we made that successful is people had video call dates and through those, um, through those dates um, they were able to build a stronger relationship because actually because they couldn't see each other, it was almost like it went back to the olden days where it was a little bit more of a traditional approach where actually people just had to really sort of find out those intricate details about each other without obviously having the touch and maybe like the physical aspects that sometimes maybe come too soon before you've actually got to know somebody very well. Interesting. And Sarah, um, how do you view people's personal matchmaking approach? For example, a friend's being set up with another friend or a relative setting up their niece or nephew with someone else? Do you know what? That's such a great question. At the end of the day, yes, we are an agency, but we're very um, heart-led. We're driven by um, people being in a relationship and finding true love. So whatever means that you, that happens, that's amazing. We will always support that. Obviously, we've got our own perspective on how we do it, and we, you know, we have private clients, we have open members, and we, you know, we also 
um, you know, we also are here to help anybody. So we do lots, we write lots of blogs, for example, which is, you know, there's tons of dating advice for people that want to do it themselves. They don't need to use our agency. Um, we also uh, host regular masterclasses, and we even do um, masterclasses on online dating because obviously that has, um, you know, we mentioned about challenges earlier, that has obviously impacted um, how people view relationships in day-to-day. And so, um, you know, if you watch one of our masterclasses, we can help you be a little bit more successful with online dating. So it's very much about we would very support any avenue that you can take. If that's a friend that's helping you out matchmaker or an auntie or us or, you know, doing something online, then that's what's most important. What is truly important is finding a partner that you're really compatible with that you can spend the rest of your life with. Mm, interesting. And um, uh, Sarah, just last one last question. Of course. There's an inherent focus on freedom and autonomy in society. Yet, statistics reveal that more are finding it hard to meet suitable partners. What may be the reason for this, and how does the matchmaker fill this vacuum? I think you kind of just touched on it um, there um, with online dating. I think that's definitely changed people's perspectives and. And not particularly um, as a benefit to long-term relationships. The problem with online dating is that um, there's a paradox of choice. So uh, too many matches to choose from can potentially cause us to not trust ourselves in decision making. Um, and there's research that supports that. Um, it, there's also um, you can it help it leads people to feel powerless and frustrated. Um, perhaps they're reaching out to people online and not getting a response straight away. Whereas the other person may just be really super busy. But then what leads into that is a, you know, a core belief system that everyone online is not looking for a relationship or isn't serious or isn't committed. When we know as matchmakers that's simply not true. There are many, many people in this world that truly do want to find a life partner, are committed to the cause. But because online dating has changed those beliefs and those perspectives, um, it's kind of left people feeling a little bit sad. And, you know, this is one of the biggest things that we see all the time. We're working with, you know, all types of different people, successful, driven, ambitious, um, compassionate, um, honest, whatever their sort of core values are. They're still struggling to find somebody that matches who they are as a person. And this is why, you know, you know I would recommend to everybody that it's well worth even just speaking to a matchmaker to see how we can help or, um, you know, find you a long-term life partner. Interesting. Sarah, Helen, um, I really enjoyed what you just said and I really appreciate that you have uh, taken out your time as well. I wish you all the best for the future and thank you for uh, contributing and I hope we can have you one, one time again on The Breakfast Show. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's been a pleasure. And um, happy National Matchmaking Day. You too. Thank you. You too. Thank you. Bye-bye. You, listen, you just listened to Saren Heller King, who's a senior matchmaker in McLean's London office. And interesting what you just said. And, um, do you, listen, I, you know, what I just heard is like doing the, spe- uh, the interviews, what I just pointed out is that in the end, um, it is most preferable if you ask a matchmaker if he can find someone suitable for you. As we have these dating apps as well, but none, all of them are, we like say, trustable. If you have already heard it before, we are making fake accounts as well. And we have even a, doc- a Netflix documentary about that. So 
in the end, it comes to that point. But of course, everyone has his own opinion. If you want to share your opinion, you can do so. We have still got time, a few minutes left. So you can call in anytime. The number is 0208687878. Or you can go on our social at Voice of Some UK. Let us know your thought about matchmaking. Um, Islam, you know. Uh, I just want to come to the Islamic perspective as well what Islam says. Now, Islam places strong emphasis on the importance of a family and community. Now, matchmaking and arranged marriages are often involved to, uh, the consultation and support of the family members, elders and trusted uh, individuals. Um, the communal involvement fosters a sense of unity and cooperation within this community. Now, Islam, Islamic teachings emphasize the significance and shared values, beliefs, and goals between spouses. Now, matchmaking and arranged marriage provide an opportunity for families to ensure that potential partners are, uh, in term, are good in terms of religion, values, ethic, and life's objective. Dolly Prophet people point, for example, you know, he emphasized the importance of considering a person's character when seeing a spouse. He said, and it's very interesting what he said basically. He said, um, a woman is married for four things her wealth, her family status, her beauty, and her piety. So try to get one who is religious. And I remember he also stated that a man who's getting married, he will become a full Muslim. Basically saying that when you're not married, you're just 50% of a Muslim and the other 50% are filled by your partner. So you need both. So therefore, when you go, when you look, make sure that she she fulfills, she completes you, uh, which means, of course, that uh, in, a, in a spiritual way, she should be in a way that she can help you as well to become a 100% Muslim. This is what basically what I understand with the thing of Tali Prophet, peace be upon him. So basically you are 50% and the other 50% are completed by your partner. Therefore, I think it's very important that when you, what I believe is when you're looking for someone, you should consult your elder, elder people as well. But in the end, it is your own decision. It comes, uh, it comes back to your own decision what you think about it. So this is also important as well. You can get advices and help, but in the end, it comes back to your own decision. Now, um, Dines says, uh, while arranged marriage involves family involvement, Islam plays great importance on the mutual consent and choice of the individuals involved. Now, as I said, both parties must, will must willingly agree to the marriage arrangement, ensuring that their voices are heard and their feelings respected. Islamic teachings respect the culture and regional diversity of marriage practices within the framework of Islamic ethics. As long as the practices goes hand in hand with Islamic principles, the diversity of tradition in matchmaking and arrangement is acknowledged and celebrated. Effective communication is mutual understanding are key com components of a successful marriage. Islam encourages individuals to communicate openly and honestly with each other in aiding them to build a strong foundation for the marriage. <coughs> the listeners, um, we are basically we have just reached the end of the show. Um, I just would recommend in the end what the Holy Prophet has said, which I just said earlier as well, that don't look for health, wealth, family, or beauty, or piety. Look at the inner beauty, her spirituality. Uh, look at her religion as well. Um, dear listeners, um, we have reached the end of the today's break for sure. Thank you for listening and turning in. And thank you for all our experts for taking time to discuss this topic. We had many, many experts as well. And if you like the show, you can listen to that show again. Just to go on SoundCloud. And of course, um, I'm also very grateful to our producers, Arfa Khan, Dr. Fatma Rizwan and Saman Kokar 
to our researchers, Saleh Ahmed, Subi Ahmed, Kashfanur Ahmed, dear listeners, I wish you all the best and a pleasant day ahead. If you want to learn more about Voice of Islam or about Islam, stay tuned with the Voice of Islam Radio. May the peace and blessings of Allah be with you all.